Hello, this is Christy Amira Harfouche, and you're listening to the Christian Harfouche Ministries podcast. We have a message for you today from Reverend John Harfouche. For more information, live broadcasts, and video teachings, connect with us online at globalrevival.com and join us every week for the Christian Harfouche Ministries podcast. Turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John. Something about the Gospel of John, it's just, I just, I don't know. I don't know what it is. And uh, let's go to chapter 17. And in verse 10, Jesus is praying here and he says, And all mine are thine, and thine are mine. And I am glorified in them. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to thee. Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. Hallelujah. Well, set down your Bible, put your hands on your spirit, and say, I am a believer. I I have an alert mind. I have have a receptive spirit. I have have an attentive heart. heart. My body is full of energy. And I am ready to receive what God has for me today. I will hear it. I will heed it. And I will change. Well, just shout like you've never shouted before if you're excited about that. Hallelujah! Hallelujah! That's a good word to have that when you come here, you never leave the same. You can't say the same about many places. You know, you go to the gym one time, nothing changes. You leave almost exactly the same way as you came. Maybe minus uh, about the equivalent calories of an Oreo. Does that frustrate anyone else? You know, you're like running. You're like, man, yeah, this is it. This is it. This is the time. Yeah, I'm like going to walk off this thing looking like Adonis. And then you look at your burned calories and you're like, that's two Oreos. And I ate like six yesterday. But that's not what it's like when you enter into the presence of God. Because the transformative power of God will substantively change you. Whenever you give him the opportunity to in the house of the Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Well, you may be seated, but remain standing on the inside. Last Sunday, we spoke about the apostolic generation. And not only generation meaning a group of people born at at the same time or in the same time, but generation meaning the creation, the generating, the genesis of something, 
of a new kind and how that new generation that the Bible talks about could not have been one generation in a past time because the source of that generation was not the generation that came before it. The source of that generation was Christ, and it was a new generation, a new origin, a new kind of person, a new genus, more than a new species. And that if the source of that generation is Christ, then the source of that generation is your source, and you are of that generation. And so no amount of time or space geographically or historically can separate you from that generation because you are of the same genesis. You are of the same genomai. You are the same seed as that generation and the same kind as that generation. And so we have more in common with them that lived in the first century than we do with any person living in our time today who has not been born again into the kingdom of light. Hallelujah. So if you missed out on that, it is available. Go to globalrevival.com, get it. You don't need it in order for you to receive the word today, but it will bless you in conjunction with the word today. But what we were talking about is the reality of the new birth. The fact that what you are and where you are from changes when you are born again. It is not a metaphor. It is not a symbol. It is a reality. Because before you were born of the earth. And now you are born from above. Before you were Adam's descendant, but that line, that origin, that source was cut off in your life when you died to who you were and you resurrected with Christ. You were born the second time, not as a dual citizen of the Adamic and the Christ-like, but as only a Christ-like only the reborn, you were given a new nature. Now, like we talked about, that doesn't stop people from living like they are dual citizens. That doesn't stop people from thinking they can commute between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light at will and have a job in both places. People do it, but that is not the reality of what the new birth is. And if they knew the reality, and they stood on the reality of what the new birth was, then they would experience the reality of it. They would experience the results of it in their life. You know, the word of God says, my people perish for a lack of knowledge, not for a lack of power or a lack of supply or a lack of purpose or a lack of support. They perish for a lack of knowledge because they do not know who they are. Like the Bible says, like someone who beholds themselves in a mirror 
and then walks away and forgets what manner of man, what kind of human being they are. And we are the recreated human being. Hallelujah. Now, how many of you know that is not meant to be a metaphorical thing? When the Holy Spirit came into you and baptized you, that is a substantive change. That is something you did not have before. That means that you are joined to God, that your spirit is alive where before it was dead. And so you might not physically have changed, although many of you have seen people that gave their lives to the Lord and looked like different people immediately afterwards, but you might not have physically have changed, but your nature changed. Who you are changed. The family that you are a part of changed. And that is a reality. See, people think and act as if it's a metaphor. But if it was just a metaphor, then God himself would not have had to put on flesh and die, literally, in order to get it into your life. If it was just a metaphor, he could have just taught it into your life. He could have just prophesied it through his prophets and that would have been it because the metaphor would have been delivered. But it was not a metaphor. It is a reality. And that is why God became flesh. Right? That is why he literally came and became a man joined heaven and earth so that you could be joined with heaven like he was joined with earth. Hallelujah. It's a reality. And the reason and it's, it's meant to be that way in every way. The Bible talks about the fruit of the spirit, the signs that the Holy Spirit is living in someone, that they have been regenerated is a word that's often used. Generated, generation, regenerated. You get it, right? They've been regenerated. There are gifts and there are signs in their life. Those virtues that are in those people show that they have been changed, that they are a new person. And so that new birth may be spiritual in that you didn't have to become a physical baby and start over growing in the natural all over again, but that does not make that new birth any less real. In fact, we know that the word of God is the rock that we build our life on when everything else is shifting sand. And so that spiritual birth is, if anything, more real. Can't be more real because you're real, right? Real is kind of a binary thing. You're either real or you're not real. But you get what I'm saying. It is just as real, if not more real, because it is more relevant than your natural birth. 
it is just as real as the fact that your parents conceived you and you were born into this world in the natural. The new birth is not less powerful than the first birth. God's seed is not less powerful than Adam's seed, than man's seed. Adam's fall does not hold more sway over you than Jesus' resurrection. In fact, Jesus' resurrection was the most overkill thing that God could possibly do. He paid the price in a way beyond. He was like, I'm going to send the very treasure of heaven. Hallelujah. He, he was like, you know, oh, you want that much here? Here's an infinite amount more. And so the regeneration, the new birth is more real, more relevant than even Natural birth. This is a reality that we're talking about, not a metaphor. This is a real, it's a spiritual reality. And it's something that you will see with your own eyes in the future. Because the body that you're in now, if you die and spend some time with heaven and you leave your body here and then God resurrects it later or if you never sleep and you're just here when we get caught up then the very eyes that you have in your head right now will be glorified looking upon the face of God and looking upon the glorified visage of all of your brothers and sisters in the body of Christ at that point, it'll be real easy to see that the new birth was more relevant than your earthly birth. Because you'll be looking at it. But how many of you know that we walk by faith and not by sight? That we know what Jesus gave his life for. Because it has been, the faith has been passed down to us. And because God confirms it with signs following. Hallelujah. It's not hard to believe in the miraculous and the spiritual when you're in the presence of miracles and you feel the presence of the Lord, right? Well, if the new birth is literal, then is the church literal? Is the body of Christ literal? When Jesus said that they may be one, even as we are one, we call that Jesus' priestly prayer. He is the high priest of the church, right? He is the apostle of our confession. He is the high priest. And what is his prayer? That they may be one even as we are one, he says, with God. Now, is, is the Trinity a metaphor? Or is the Trinity a reality? Is Jesus truly one with God and the Holy Spirit? 
And is the Holy Spirit literally living on the inside of you? Then are you connected to God? Then do you have the means by which we can be one in the same way that he is one with God? God, Jesus said he is in the Father and the Father is in him. Who is in you? So if you are in the body, if you are in Christ and the Holy Spirit is on the inside of you, then you possess the means by which we can be one in the same way that Jesus and God are one. And that is the destiny That is the call, that is the reality of what the church is, of what the body of Christ is. And just like that person who is living their life as a dual citizen because they don't know any better, the church is not walking in that unity because for the most part, the church does not know any better. We have a whole lot of people actively preaching against Christ's priestly prayer. A whole lot of people who will do anything in their power to convince each and every one of us that there is no real church. That the church is just a metaphor. That really, it's just about you and God. When Jesus said that they may be one, he didn't mean there would only be one of us. (laughs) That they may be only that one guy. It's you, Steve. It's just you and Jesus. (laughs) No. That's that's not what that prayer means. That prayer means that they may all be one. He says that we won't lose any of them. Keep them. That they may be one. How? He defines the manner in which we will be one. That they may be one even as we are one. Now, how many of you know that that is supernatural? That that unity is supernatural. That that unity, the body of Christ held together by the Holy Spirit, connected together by the Holy Spirit, anointing each and every one of us. It is a supernatural unity. And if you have ever spoken to another human being, or a group of them, you know that it's a miraculous unity too. Turn with me to the book of Ephesians, to my favorite chapter, which is chapter 4. Maybe I shouldn't pick favorites. It's all good. It's all real good. Right? Paul says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. That is a lot of King James. 
we got beseech, we got wherewith. Paul says here, one of the translations reads, God has called you. Live up to your calling. He's saying, I, the prisoner of the Lord, ask you, I beseech you to live up to the call that God has called you to. Well, then he goes on to describe that call. With all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, how many of you have felt that the Lord has had to give you long-suffering to deal with some of your brothers and sisters in the Lord? Forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Endeavoring is the, the, uh, it, the meaning of it is in this uh, verse in, in the Greek. The meaning of it is earnestly striving to maintain. Earnestly striving to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. One. How many of you know that that is the truth? That that is a fact? That he is talking about you. He is talking about the church. There is just one God, one Lord, one faith, one church, one body. I, I feel as if I say it almost every time I'm in the pulpit, but God does not have multiple bodies. He's not one head with multiple bodies. He has one body, right? But we can recognize that that is the truth. In the same way that we understand that what our destiny is as, the, as individuals in the church, to be transformed into the image of his son, right? We can recognize that this is the truth and also recognize that the church is not walking in this right now. They are not walking in this truth in the way that they need to. There are two billion of us. That's a lot of people. If all of those people knew who they were and what they were called to walk in, can you, there wouldn't be two billion of us. There'd be seven billion of us and the rapture would have happened already. Right? <laughs> and, he, and he says, and I'm not going to go through this whole section, but it talks about, and he gave some apostles, he says, but unto every one of us is given grace, divine, divine ability, according to the measure of the gift of Christ, right? He gave gifts unto man. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ until we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So how many of you recognize that 
It is a fact that there is one body. There is one Lord. There is one faith. But he also says that God has put gifts in the church until the whole body comes into perfection, comes into fullness, the fullness of the stature of Christ till the whole church together is transformed into the image of Christ. And so that destiny that you have to be changed into the image of Christ is not a separate destiny from the destiny of the church. It is a corporate calling. It is something that all of us are called to, and it's something that is promised to the whole body, and it's something that most Christians do not believe. Because they believe that it'll happen in the by and by when we all apparently lose our free will. Right? When God can force us to be in unity, we'll be in unity. Is that what happens in the by and by? Do we all get replaced with perfect drones? Listen, we'll be perfect because we will see him and we will be like him even as we know him, right? But this is not some Borg assimilation eternity where you get transformed into someone else so that you can all be in unity with each other. God knew you before you were formed. He created you. Each individual, each meant to be a uniquely gifted part of one whole, of one body. It, listen, you, what I'm saying, you have to understand, what I'm saying is that the body of Christ is a spiritual reality. It is not a metaphor. The, the, the whole body be, being Becoming the image of the fullness of Christ is a prophecy. Is Paul a false prophet? Is Jesus a false prophet? Then that is the destiny that we are pushing towards. And that is the reason why there are gifts in the church of prophecy, of miracles, why there are apostles, why there are pastors, why there are teachers and prophets. They are here for the edifying of the body of Christ. They are here till we all come in the unity of the faith. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Listen. I don't even understand some of the arguments that these people make against the church, against the body of Christ, right? Like, like Dr. Harfouche mentioned people saying that, oh no, he mentioned the people saying Bible is a pagan word, but people have also said the word church is a pagan word because we're speaking English. I know that it's hard for English speaking people to comprehend that there are other languages in the world. And the word church that we use is a Germanic word, right? Because the language that we're using came from Germanic people. Easter is a pagan word. 
right? We, Thursday has four at the beginning of it. Okay, our days of the week are pagan words. Sun day, moon day, two tots day, Woden's day, Thor's day, Freya's day, Saturn's day. Okay, we're speaking English. This is the English language. And the words have etymologies that are less important than the meaning of the word when we say it. The word church in English is a translation of the word that's in the Bible. You know what other word isn't in the Bible? The. There are no English words in the Greek version of the Bible, except for the Greek words that we stole and made them into English words later. Like Gene. <laughs> Right? Okay, can we, can we be Christian and still think? Can we have brains? All right. The word Bible means book. The word church is how we translate ecclesia, the assembly. And so you have people saying, oh, well, church isn't in the Bible. Right? The word church is a pagan word. As if the whole ancient world speaks English, by the way. Just spoilers. There are a lot of ancient churches that just call it ecclesia because they're speaking Greek. Or they call it whatever in their specific languages. So, you know, it's not like the English invented church and forced it into the past. The English invented the word church and then got in a time machine. No, listen, what was Jesus talking about when he said my assembly, what we translate as my church, I will build my assembly. Like these people say, oh, it's not the word church, it's the word assembly, as if that changes the meaning of what Jesus said. As, oh, well, forget I said anything. It's just an assembly. That completely changes the definition of what the church is. That's not how that works, okay? If it looks like a duck... And it walks like a duck. And it smells like a duck. It's a duck. Even if you're calling it something in another language. Right? It's like someone at a restaurant telling you, oh no, this isn't chicken, it's poulet. This isn't cow, it's boof. It's still cow, it's still chicken, it's just a different language, okay? It's still the Bible, and it's still the church. So you want to call it the assembly? Welcome to the assembly this morning. We are assembled together in the name of God. 
one God, one faith, one assembly, one body of Christ. It is. Listen. <laughs> I'm sorry if I'm if I'm you know being humorous this morning. I just find it ridiculous. Like as if some as if they're supposed to say that, and you're supposed to be like, oh, okay, never mind then. <laughs> Forget everything I said. Let's throw away the whole Bible just because the name of it's in English. When we're speaking English, because other people don't call it that when they're speaking their languages. It doesn't matter what you call it. It doesn't matter if you only want to refer to it as ecclesia. Like some people insist on saying Yeshua HaMashiach as if that's the way they pronounced it back then, which it's not. Spoilers. Right? And if you want to call it whatever you want to call it, the definition of it stays the same. What the Bible says it is stays the same. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. The church, the church, the church. This is what, you know, it's crazy. It's crazy. I don't even, let me ask you something. If it's all about you and God, just you and God, that's Christianity. Christianity is something you experience all on your own, right? With no one else involved. Then what is a prophet? What is an apostle? What's a pastor? The word of God doesn't say that God sent the scriptures for the perfecting of the saints. Or sent the ability, literacy for the perfecting of the saints. If you can read, that's all you need. It, it says he sent gifts. And you know what? The Lord is smart. He didn't send all the gifts to one person. He didn't send all the gifts to every person. No, he said to each is a portion gifts. And every one of us has different gifts. Right? And you know what? If people just read the Bible, the people that claim that all they do is read the Bible do a lot less reading the Bible than they should. Because if people just read the Bible, they would see that one part of the body can't say to another part of the body, I have no need of you. If the whole body is eyes, that's bad, right? So if you're one part, you don't get to be the whole body. You are incapable of being the whole body. You, if, if all you were was eyeballs... You would not be a body. Because there would be no tendons. There would be no ligaments. There would be no bones. You cannot take one part of the body and use it to replace another part of the body. Unless we're talking about skin grafts or something like that, right? And that's still skin. Right? You need every part of the body. 
Because the Lord in his infinite wisdom did not give you everything. He gave it to the church. He put gifts where? In the assembly. Tell you one thing, if you want to call it the assembly, can't have an assembly with one person. That ain't an assembly. And the, the two or three that are gathered, it, it's not, can't be your multiple personalities. Listen, the church, the assembly, the body of Christ is just as real and just as essential to being a Christian as the new birth. Now, that doesn't mean that someone who's heard the gospel at some point in their life and finds themselves stranded on a desert island on their deathbed can't call out to God and make it to heaven. But who did they hear about God from? It wasn't themselves. It wasn't themselves. They heard about it from the church. They heard about it from the body of Christ. The body of Christ. And the whole concept of it's just you and God completely ignores. It throws away the great commission. Because there's no such thing as disciples anymore. Unless you think that it's just you and God and your disciples. Like you don't have to have any authority above you whatsoever, but then you have people under you. You know, it's just me and God. I don't need anyone else. But all these people that are listening to me, they need me. Some people got some pride issues. They're real impressed with themselves and not impressed with anybody else. It makes me wonder what heaven they think they're going to live in. Who they think their neighbors are going to be. They're going to get like their own heaven. Oh, it's just me and God. What are all these other people doing here in heaven? Listen. Listen, I, 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 I can be funny because I enjoy it. And I think, I think that it communicates the ridiculousness of what we're talking about here. But the word of God is the word of God. It says, if you do not love your brother whom you see, you don't love God. If you say you love God and you don't love your brother who you see, you are a liar. I didn't say that. I'm not calling you out. The Bible is calling you out, okay? The Bible is calling you out. You gotta ignore the whole book if you wanna get rid of the church. Sorry, the assembly. Can't assemble by yourself. I mean, you might have messed yourself up by insisting on the word ecclesia. Assemble, the assembly, the assembly, the saints. And people, and people say, oh, well, it's not the word church, it's the word assembly. So that means it's more of like a loose affiliation, right? Like it's just a bunch of people. 
It's an assembly of people. As if the word assembly implies anything about the organizational structure of the assembly. As if the word church applies, implies anything other than what we are taught from the word that the church is. Does the word church have a meaning outside of describing the church? If I asked you to define church outside of the Bible, there is no definition. The word church means what we use it to mean. Because we use it to describe something that is described to us in the Bible. So changing that word out for a different word doesn't change the meaning of the word. There's no inherent implication in church, the word church, that implies hierarchy and the word assembly that implies no hierarchy. The two words are neutral. Right? You can assemble whether you're uh, the house of lords, whether you're uh, a ruling class of a nation, whether you're a union, whether you're the Avengers, it doesn't matter. You can assemble... But it's the nature of the assembly that determines what's going on in that assembly. In that assembly of people. Right? And I, I just don't understand where people get it from. You know? It's like, it's like they think that like heaven doesn't have armies and generals and ranks and all this stuff. And like different angels that are called to do different things. It's like they don't read the Bible. <laughs> you know? And you have people that are like that. They're like, nobody needs to talk to me about God. God can talk to me himself because I'm born again. I have the Holy Spirit. Ergo, I don't need anyone else. But that's not what the word of God says. The word of God says the Holy Ghost is in the church. The Holy Ghost bonds together the church. Earnestly, earnestly striving to keep the bond of peace, the unity of the spirit, the unity of the spirit. And he specifically talks about people having different gifts, specifically saying that there's no way that you are an island all your own. You are not your own body. You are a part of the body. You're a part of the body. And there's a very strong anti any kind of church movement in the world today. Uh, It's been going on for years. I remember seeing, it was probably more than 10 years ago, I saw an article about the post-church era. It was in like Newsweek or something like that. And it was talking about all of these new Christian movements that are basically saying, well, you don't need to go to church to be a Christian. Church has nothing to do with being a Christian. Church is just like a school, right? You don't have to keep going to school to be a doctor. You already got your doctorate. So if you already know the words, you don't even need to go back to church. Ain't what the word of God says. Ain't what the apostles taught. It is not what we see at any point in the book of Acts or in the history of the church. And it's completely out of line with what our end goal is. Because if the goal is till we all come into unity as one perfect man in the fullness of the stature of Jesus Christ, which let me tell you, sounds blasphemous to some people. 
like the, like the church could ever live up to Christ. The fullness of the stature. Jesus Christ is God. You think you can have the fullness of the stature of Jesus Christ? Yes, I can. And yes, we can. Why? Because it's not something that is supplied in the natural. It's not a body that is formed by some natural organization or bylaws. It is a body that is held together by the Holy Spirit, who is God, that is empowered by the Holy Spirit. It says... Let me... One second... My Bible went to Galatians. I don't know what happened. It's just moving. Right? Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect... Oh, what's that? Those are two separate things. Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. So you could have perfect knowledge of the Son of God and you would still be out of line if you were separated from the body. You could have perfect knowledge of the Son of God. You believe that Jesus is the Christ? Good. Demons believe it too. And tremble. It doesn't do them any good. You could have perfect knowledge and that wouldn't be enough. Wow. Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. And so not being connected to the body, not being a part of the church, not being in the unity of the faith leaves you susceptible to winds of doctrine to the slight of men, to ridiculously unbiblical things that people will try to tell you to get you away from the church and after you get away from the church. And if you don't have the church to tell you straight what the truth is, then you're on your own. You're going to be susceptible. No more children, but speaking the truth in love, may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom, here you go, the whole body fitly joined together. From whom? From whom? From whom? No, no, not finish the sentence. From whom is the whole body fitly joined together? Yeah, just look a few words back. It's right here. Even Christ. Okay. From whom? So the body is joined together by what? And so we're talking about a miraculous joining together, not a member's role. 
right? Not a, not, a, not a denomination, not a group. We're talking about something miraculous and something real that we're obviously not seeing the fruit of. Is that because of a limitation of the power of Christ? Is that because of some failing of Christ? No. Just like that person who's not walking in the authority that God called them to, not walking in the knowledge that they're a new creation, not walking like a new creation, when the church is not walking as what it is, which is one body fitly joined together by Christ, it is because they need some prophets and some apostles to tell them the truth in love. The truth in love. You still say the truth even if you do it in love. Because... Telling people something other than the truth is not love. That's just wanting them to like you. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth. And so this unity requires uh, multiple people being involved because it is fitly joined together by Christ and it is compacted by that which every joint supplieth. That's you. You are a joint. Now, are you supplying something that you have in the natural? No. You're dead to the natural. All that natural died. You're supplying something that God gave you as a part of the new birth, right? Compacted by that which every joint supplieth according to the effectual working in the measure of every part maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. At no point in any part of the Bible do you see Paul talking about one person sitting by themselves and receiving the fullness of the transformation and the gospel alone. It is always the church. Did the Holy Ghost descend upon one person first? And then the church? When the, when the Holy Ghost came, did it descend upon the whole church? When people were added to the church, did they receive the Holy Ghost in like manner? It's the same Holy Ghost, right? It's not a lesser Holy Ghost. The, uh, the Weymouth translation says, its various parts closely fitting and firmly adhering to one another grows by the aid of every contributory ligament with power proportioned to the need of each individual part. Can't do it without us. We need each other. 
We have to do it together. Because you ain't the whole man. Right? You're a part of the body of Christ. For from whom the whole body closely joined and knit together by the contact of every part with the source of its life. This word effectual working is energio. By the effectual working, it's the energy of God that's in each and every one of us. See, the body is a reality. And we, just like you don't have to wait, I'll tell you something, just like you don't have to wait for someone else to get a revelation of what being born again means. We don't have to wait for the whole body to get a revelation of what the body means in order to start walking in it. Right? We as a, a group, as a tribe, as a piece can operate as a body perfect. We can operate together and lift each other up and lift those up who are not necessarily a part of our family directly because they're all a part of the body. When one part of the body rejoices, the whole body rejoices. When one part of the body suffers, the whole body suffers. There's no separation. There's no division, but we don't have to wait and you don't have to wait to experience this for everyone to experience it. We can experience it and that can spread like a little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And we're talking about something real here. We're talking about something more real than the natural because we're talking about the word of God. Do you know, the Bible says... If someone's hungry, what good is it if you say, be filled? Right? And so there is multiple parts to the ministry of the gospel. There are the natural feeding and there is the spiritual feeding. There is natural reaching out and there is spiritual reaching out. If you have a family, there's a care that you have for one another. If you have a good family and you take care of each other in a way, right? The church is like that. We all are compacted together in love. When we love one another, not with phileo, we might. Not with brotherly love, we might. Not with natural love, we might, right? I, you know, in the case of like our spouses and children, I hope absolutely that we do. But with agape, the God kind of love, the kind of love that speaks the truth, but not out of any motivation, but the love for the person that you're speaking the truth to so that you can help them and free them from whatever snare or weapon or lie or attack that the enemy is throwing up against them. See, the body has to be a real body. The church has to be a real church. Just calling yourself a Christian does not do anything if it doesn't do anything. If you're not pressing into the things of God and doing the supernatural 
and you're not caring for your brother and sister in the Lord, then you're not doing anything in the body. You're like a dead arm. Now, how do we do something? Well, we do something by becoming a part of the church. In truth, understanding that we are a part of the church. In truth. And we work together to preach the gospel to the nations of the world. Right? And there are different giftings that the Lord gives us. You don't have to feel uh, sad that you don't have a particular gifting that someone else has. Or think that you can't serve God unless you're called to be a prophet or you're called to be an apostle. That's ridiculous. When God made you, he made you with a purpose. And when he made you born again, he fulfilled what you were meant to be and he gives unto us gifts. Now the word of God says to covet earnestly the best gifts. So, You can say, Lord, I want to do that, and that's good. When you see someone casting out devils and you say, Lord, I want to do that, that's good. He will give you the ability to do that. But there are offices and there are giftings in the church. There are different functions and there are different strengths that each and every one of us has. And when we work together, we're far more powerful than when we don't work together. Does that make sense? And so, it's just like the word says, be ye doers and not just hearers of the word. And so someone can be a member of a church and come to church every week and not be a part of the church, the body of Christ, because they're only hearing and they're not doing. They're going back to their natural life, doing their natural thing, living their natural way in the world like a dual citizen, and they're not stepping into what God has called them to be as a member of the body of Christ. Hallelujah. What I, what, I wanted, what I want to get over to you today is the unity of the church. And the church is unified in a spiritual sense and the church can be unified in a natural sense as well. And it needs to be. The church was, in times past, more unified than it is today. It is also much smaller than it is today because of the global population was much smaller. There are more Christians on the earth today than there were people on the earth in the first few centuries. The global population was probably about 300 million. That means that if there are 2 billion Christians on the planet right now, think about how much more that is than 300 million. That's like seven times. Don't make, don't make me actually do the math right now. Ish. It's a lot more Christians that are on the planet today than there were humans on the planet 
in those days. But how many of you know that the power of God is not limited and that the word of God is the word of God? The church in the book of Acts was unified. The church in the book of Acts was one. And the church in the centuries after, no matter how many different nations they were in, and we talked about this when we talked about the apostolic generation, was one. And the church still is one in Christ. Just like you are that apostolic generation. Those people that lived in that first century, that sat under the ministries of Peter and Paul and John and James and everybody, are a part of the body of Christ that you are a part of. They are still a part of the body of Christ that you are a part of. And you are part of the same new birth, the same regeneration that they have. And so the barriers to us being one with each other as Christians are far less than we realize because we have God's supernatural ability to make us one. Now, as long as we're in the, the, as long as we're in the type of frame of mind that we're in in the modern world where you tell someone you're a Christian and their first question is, what kind of Christian? When their first thought as a fellow Christian is not, oh, this is my brother or sister, it's, who is this? Are they really my brother or sister? What kind of Christian are you? Which body of Christ are you a part of? How many of you know it doesn't matter if we dress different? or speak a different language, or enjoy different genres of music. If we believe in Jesus Christ, and we are born again into the body of Christ, we are one. The book of Acts says, um, In chapter 2, you don't have to go there. This is verse 42. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things in common. It was a lot easier to organize a much smaller group of people in a natural organizational way. But how many of you know that the unity that they had was not just natural? It was supernatural. It was a supernatural unity. Now, I want to read to you something uh, that was written in about 180. So, after the Bible was written, uh, I read to you a little bit from... um, Irenaeus previously speaking about the miraculous that the church was doing in his time. That his, one of his primary defenses against heretics, right? Which is a word that we have an interesting relationship with in the modern world. Heretics are celebrated in a way by modern culture because it's seen as, oh, if you call someone a heretic, 
you're bigoted because you're not accepting their truth. You're, you're, you're erasing them or something like that. You're, you're making it so that they're irrelevant. But when we talk about heretics, what are we talking about? We're talking about there is one church. There is one body of Christ. There is one truth, the born-again reality, and people that attempt to pull people out of that by lying about Christ and lying about the apostles are who they're talking about when they say heretics, right? How many of you understand that it's important to speak the truth in love? And so it's not with any kind of animus that we say, you're wrong. It's because the truth is what is important. It's because the truth is what's important. Now, Irenaeus, uh, we talked about this before, lived in, in what is now France, in Lyons. He grew up in Ephesus, where the book of Ephesians, the book of Ephesians was written to Ephesus. And he grew up under the teaching of Polycarp, who was trained by the Apostle John. And so we have the full records of everything. John was at Ephesus. You know, he lived a lot longer than the other apostles. Uh, you know, like Jesus, like Jesus said uh, about him, prophesied about him. He lived up all the way unto uh, the way that Irenaeus records it is to the years of Trojan. Now, don't let me lose you because I'm saying a lot of names right now. But do you remember when we read the letter to Trojan from Pliny about the Christians? So when that letter was written, John, the apostle, was still around. He was in Ephesus, different part of the empire from where Pliny was. But that is how close we were at that time to Jesus and the apostles. There were still eyewitnesses living on the earth at that time who had seen the resurrected Jesus go up in the clouds at the ascension. There were still some of those 500 still with the church. During that time, John taught at Ephesus. And one of the people that learned under him was Polycarp. Well, Polycarp lived a great many years, and he was, one, he was who Irenaeus sat under. And so Irenaeus grew up hearing stories about the Apostle John and about the other people who were eyewitnesses of the gospel. There's one particular story which I think you'll find interesting. There was a Gnostic. Now, I'll do this very quickly. The Gnostics believed that the God of the New Testament and the God of the Old Testament were two different gods. And that all of creation is evil because it was created by a lesser God. And that Christ came not in the flesh, but merely an illusion because he wasn't natural, he was immaterial so that he could free us from our material bodies so that we could leave this corrupted reality behind and become one with something immaterial. 
right? Okay, that's pretty much the sum up. So in order to believe that this is true, then you have to believe that all of the apostles are liars, or at least that a considerable percentage of them are. Some of the Gnostics managed to say, oh, well, only Paul was telling the truth. And some of the Gnostics said, no, only, definitely Paul wasn't telling the truth because they had to figure out ways to work around the Bible. The problem that they had was that the apostles wrote stuff down and the early church kept it. And so we had the records and so it was really hard to lie about what it was that the apostles taught. It was really hard, and these people were working overtime to do so. One of them was around in Ephesus when John was still here. And this is one of the stories that Polycarp told Irenaeus, that John walked into the baths, and he saw that he was there, and he said, let's leave before this whole place collapses because the enemy of God is here. Which is pretty funny. You know, you've got like stories. He's, he's got, essentially, he's got stories about the Apostle John that you've never heard. Because his teacher was taught by the Apostle John. So that's the time frame that we're talking about. It's 180 when he's writing this book from what is now France. What was then not France. Uh... 180, it's 150 years after the ascension. And he is writing a book that is called Against Heresies. And he goes systematically through all of these different groups of people who are all separate from the church. They're not in the church. They've started up their own thing. And he goes individually through each one and shows in the word of God and in all of the history that they have that they're wrong, that what they're saying is obviously not true, right? And he starts speaking, and part of his argument is basically my whole message last week. So uh, I read it. I was like, oh, wow, okay. Irenaeus is preaching my messages over here. This is in Against Heresies. It's in, it's in the, um, the first book of Against Heresies. The church, though dispersed throughout the whole world, even to the ends of the earth, 180, okay? Christianity, still illegal. People still getting fed to lions, still being burned at the stake. We got the literal underground church, and he's writing this. The church, though dispersed throughout the whole world, even to the ends of the earth, has received from the apostles and their disciples this faith. She believes in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and the sea and all things that are in them, and in one Christ Jesus, the Son of God, who became incarnate for our salvation, and in the Holy Spirit, who proclaimed through the prophets the dispensations of God, and the advents, and the birth from a virgin, and the passion, and the resurrection from the dead, and the ascension into heaven in the flesh of the beloved Christ Jesus, our Lord, and his future manifestation from heaven in the glory of the Father to gather all things in one, and raise up anew all flesh of the whole human race in order that to Christ 
Christ Jesus, our Lord and God and Savior and King, according to the will of the invisible Father, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess to him and that he should execute just judgment towards all, that he may send spiritual wickedness and the angels who transgressed and became apostates together with the ungodly and unrighteous and wicked and profane among them into everlasting fire." but may, in the exercise of his grace, confer immortality on the righteous and holy and those who have kept his commandments and have preserved in his love some from the beginning of their Christian course and others from the date of their repentance and may surround them with everlasting glory. Familiar? Okay, so we're on the same page here with uh, Irenaeus. Would you say we're on the same page? As I have already observed... The church, having received this preaching and this faith, although scattered throughout the whole world, yet as if occupying but one house, carefully preserves it. She also believes these points just as if she had but one soul and one and the same heart. And she proclaims them and teaches them and hands them down with perfect harmony as if she possessed only one mouth. For although the languages of the world are dissimilar, yet the import of the tradition is one and the same. For the churches which have been planted in Germany do not believe or hand down anything different nor do those in Spain, nor do those in Gaul, nor those in the East, nor those in Egypt, nor those in Libya, nor those which have been established in the central regions of the world. That's the Middle East, by the way. That was the center, uh, central regions of the world at that time. Uh, but as the Son, that creature of God, is one and the same throughout the whole world, so also the preaching of the truth shineth everywhere and enlightens all men that are willing to come to a knowledge of the truth. Hallelujah. 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 Nor will any of the rulers, nor will any of the rulers in the churches, however highly gifted he may be in point of eloquence, teach doctrine different for these from these for no one is greater than the master nor on the other hand will he who is deficient in power of expression inflict any injury on the tradition for the faith being ever one and the same neither does one who is able at great length to discourse regarding it make any addition to it nor does one who can say but little diminish it. And so the faith is one. It doesn't matter if somebody is full of the power of God to preach the gospel and another person is ignorant of the fullness of the faith or incapable of describing what the fullness of the faith is. It does not affect what that one deposit is that was one time delivered. Hallelujah. It does not follow 
because men are endowed with greater and less degrees of intelligence, that they should therefore change the subject of the faith itself and should conceive of some other God besides him who is the framer, maker, and preserver of this universe. Or of another Christ, or another only begotten. But the fact referred to simply implies this, that one may bring out the meaning of those things which have been spoken in parables and accommodate them to the general scheme of the faith and explain with a special clearness the operation and dispensation of God connected with human salvation. He's, 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 going, uh, he's explaining here because the Gnostics claimed that they really understood the scriptures. That they had a clearer understanding of the scriptures. And he's saying, it doesn't matter how smart you think you are. It doesn't matter how much verbal eloquence you have or how high your IQ is. You cannot add anything to the faith, nor can you take anything away. And no amount of thinking is going to introduce new doctrines into the word of God. Hallelujah. I think that's important for some Christians to hear because some Christians like eloquent people that say things that they've never heard before. I'll leave that there. Later on, he talks about the deposit of the faith and he talks about the fact that the apostles handed the faith down to the church. And the reason he does is because he says, listen, all these people are claiming that they know what the word of God is, but how much more do those who were actually trained by the apostles understand what the deposit of the faith is? How much more do those who sat under the apostles' teaching understand the faith? And um, he says, it is within the power of all, therefore, in every church who may wish to see the truth, to contemplate clearly the tradition of the apostles manifested throughout the whole world. And we are in a position to reckon up those who were by the apostles, instituted bishops or overseers in the churches, and to demonstrate the succession of these men to our own times. So he said, listen, there's one church, and we can count out in every one of these churches who was appointed and how the word was passed down by the apostles so that we know what is the true faith, right? I'm not going to read all this. It's a, lot of, uh, it's a lot of word. But he says, but he says, we can show who was appointed as overseers over the church by the apostles, right? For if the apostles, or wait, uh, those who... <laughs> read this. This is good. And we are in a position to reckon those who were by the apostles instituted bishops in the churches and to demonstrate the succession of these men to our own times. Those who neither taught nor knew of anything like what these heretics rave about. For if the apostles had known hidden mysteries, which they were in the habit of imparting to the perfect, apart and privately from the rest, they would have delivered them especially to those to whom they were also committing the churches themselves. Right? 
For they were desirous that these men should be perfect and blameless in all things, whom also they were leaving behind as their successors, delivering up their own place of government to these men, which men, if they discharged their functions honestly, would be a great boon to the church. But if they should fall away, the direst calamity. And he goes through and he names a number of... uh, a number of different churches and counts out the succession and shows the writings of Clement, for instance, and how Clement spoke against heresies. But the point is, there was a time when he said, any person that wants to search out what the truth of the apostles is just has to look at the church. Just go to the churches and you will see that everywhere in the world, they teach the same message. They teach the same word. There's one more thing I want to read you that I, that I like a lot. Since, therefore, we have such proofs, it is not, it, it is not necessary to seek the truth among others, which it is easy to obtain from the church. Since the apostles, like a rich man depositing his money in a bank, lodged in her hands most copiously all things pertaining to the truth, so that every man, whosoever will, can draw from her the water of life. For she is the entrance to life. All others are thieves and robbers. Wow. (laughs) on this account we are bound to avoid them but to make choice of the things pertaining to the church with the utmost diligence and to lay hold of the tradition of the church for how stands the case suppose there arise a dispute relative to some important question among us should we not have recourse to the most ancient churches with which the apostles held constant intercourse and learn from them what is certain and clear in regard to the present question? For how should it be if the apostles themselves had not left us writings? Would it not be necessary in that case to follow the course of the tradition in which they handed down to those to whom they did commit the churches? then, this is the part I wanted to get to, to which course many nations of those barbarians who believe in Christ do assent. Now, barbarians seems derogatory, but it means someone who speaks a different language. Or in this case, someone who probably can't read or write because usually the written languages were the primary languages, Right? Irenaeus knew a number of languages, so the people he was calling barbarians were people who were from nations where they had no written language. And he's talking about even them upholding the faith. He says, if we didn't have the scriptures that we could search out, would we not have to go to the churches that the apostles founded in order to see what it was that the apostles taught them? And he says, to which course many nations of those barbarians who believe in Christ do assent. They agree, having salvation written in their hearts by the Spirit, without paper or ink, 
and carefully preserving the ancient tradition, believing in one God, the creator of heaven and earth, and all things therein by means of Christ Jesus, the Son of God, who because of his surpassing love towards his creation, condescended to be born of a virgin, he himself uniting man through himself to God, and having suffered under Pontius Pilate and rising again, and having been received up in splendor, shall come in glory, the Savior of those who are saved, the judge of those who are judged. He says, those who in the absence of written documents have believed this faith are barbarians, so far as regards our language, but as regards doctrine, manner, and tenor of life, they are, because of the faith, very wise indeed. And they do please God, ordering their conversation in all righteousness, chastity, and wisdom. If anyone were to preach to these men the inventions of the heretics, speaking to them in their own language, they would at once stop their ears and flee off as far as possible. And so he says, even those that cannot read that do not have the scriptures in their language that are raised up in the church. Now, they got the scriptures in their language not that much later. Thank the Lord, we have historical records by like 300, which is, I guess that's quite a bit later. But it's not that much later, historically. Um, He says, the faith has been so preserved in the church and so self-evidently preserved in the church that even those who have become believers in the faith who don't have the Bible in their own language yet live according to the faith and recognize what the truth is and would flee any of these heretics that try to say otherwise. Because even without that written deposit, they were able to receive the teaching of the church. Now, that is not something that one man studying something out on his own can accomplish. Reaching the world in that way and and transforming people's lives in that way all over the world, regardless of culture or background or language, is not something that could have been accomplished by a book or by one person with that book. And thankfully, the word of God was translated into their languages afterward. But just like the disciples in the first century in Jerusalem and Antioch, they heard the word and were taught the word before there were any written scriptures for them to read. And that word was preserved in the church. And up until that time, And for many hundreds of years after that word was preserved. Now, why is this important? This is important because there is a great many people in the world today that claim that there is no way to know for sure what the correct translation of the Bible is. What the correct way to read the Bible is. And so they make understanding the doctrine of the Lord a matter of opinion. And they say, that's how you read it, but I read it this way. That's how you read it, but I read it this way. Well, that is exactly what the church was dealing with in Irenaeus' time. 
And those people said, oh yeah, you believe that Jesus Christ was the incarnate son of God, but the God of the New Testament isn't the God of the Old Testament at all. Not a very original idea. I feel like a lot of people today feel like they invented that one. Right? People talk about that like it's some great revelation that just came to them when the, the Gnostics had been, had been beating that drum for 2,000 years. But they're wrong. And that's the important part. We know that they are wrong because we have the preserved word of God and the preserved history of the church that preserved that word and taught that word and tells us the right way to read that word. Now listen, I believe that the word of God is divine. It is unparalleled in that you can get everything that you need from the Bible, from the word of God. And if you earnestly seek God, he will show you in the word of God all of those things that the ancient church has always known and that the church has always known. He will lead you to church. He will show you why you should be in church. And he will show you that those doctrines are the truth in the word so that when you hear those words in the mouth of the church, you go, yes, that is the truth. And it will bear witness with your spirit and it will speak to your spirit. And so we have an we have a, a unparalleled deposit in the form of the Bible. The Bible was written by many, many dozens of different people over something like 3,000 years. It is a very, it is a entirely unique document, even when you don't believe that it was the inspired word of God. But it is the inspired word of God, spoken through the prophets by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost across basically the entirety of recorded human history. And every one of those Old Testament books was pointing to Christ, was foretelling the coming of Christ. And Christ came, and what did he do? He made the church. He made the church. In fact, the Bible tells us in the scripture that's talking about how husbands should love their wives. We're meant to love our wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Right? Not for you, Steve. (laughs) Not just you. He didn't just die so that he could have a personal relationship with Steve. God loves you, man. (laughs) I'm not denying that. He wants to have a personal relationship with you. But that's not the whole reason that he came and died. You think God had a personal relationship with Enoch? He knew God and was not. If God just wanted to get Steve to heaven, he could do that. But he didn't come for just Steve. He came and died for the church. He gave us each the new birth 
but he gave us all the new birth. And we are baptized into his body, the church. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And so when anybody tells you that we don't know if that's what the apostles really taught, trust me, we do. We do not just from history and not just from the Lord confirming his word with signs following, but from both and from more sources. Because we have the word of God. We have the whole tradition of people that followed the word of God. How many of you think that's important? Right? I could have gotten up here and read a book written by, by E.W. Kenyon or by Kenneth Copeland or something like that, Right? And, and you'd be like, okay, this is what E.W. Kenyon is saying about God. But it would be a lot more interesting to hear what E.W. Kenyon is saying in 180 AD. Because it's a time period that everybody's seeking to understand. And, you know, we got a whole lot of people saying, oh, well, you know, the church became apostate. Right? The church departed from the apostles' doctrine. And they all pinpoint different places where they believe that that happened. A lot of people say at the Council of Nicaea. The irony is, if you read the actual canons of the Council of Nicaea, Irenaeus is basically quoting them 200 years before they were written. Because those weren't new. That was what the church had been saying since the beginning. And that was what the church held on to. The devil didn't beat the church. The devil didn't defeat the church. The church destroyed paganism. It took over the world. It spread to the far reaches. It toppled empires. And the miracles and the miraculous continued in the church for centuries and centuries and centuries, and the working of the Holy Ghost has never ceased. Has never ceased. In every age, in every era, the Holy Ghost has worked through good men and women in the church to preach the gospel and to deliver healing to the world. And just like he said, it doesn't matter one person being particularly eloquent doesn't add anything to the gospel. Just like one person being particularly ignorant does not damage the gospel. It does not subtract anything from the gospel. And so there were eras where people were more ignorant than the era that he was living in. But that did not change what the church is. That did not remove the body of Christ from the earth. And from the moment that he went up, the gates of hell will not prevail against his body, the church. And we are still here. We are still here today. And we have the opportunity to walk in that reality in a way that previous natural generations did not experience, but in the way that our generation, the apostolic generation, experienced. Because like I said then, there's no distance between us and them, just like there's no distance between us and you. If God doesn't have to go anywhere to get there, and the Holy Spirit is living on the inside of you, then guess what? 
We are compacted together. We are connected together. And the body of Christ needs to realize who they are. And stop looking at other people who are believers in Christ and going, what kind of Christian are you? What kind of Christian are you? As if this is about earthly opinion. Instead of the truth of God. If someone is ignorant, you can teach them. If someone is empowered, you can learn from them. But we are called to be one body. We are called to be one body. Does not require any kind of natural organization in order for us to start in order for us to start acting as such and experiencing the benefits of such. If we know that that is the truth, we can walk in that. And maybe other people will think that, but when we see a child of God, we will not push them away, but we will pull them in, in love, and know that this is my brother, this is my sister, and I will speak the truth to them in love. We have the same mission, we have the same God, we're part of the same call. Hallelujah. They might learn a whole lot from you. You might even learn something from them. And there might be people who want to be schismatics and separate from everybody else, but they can't get away from us because you know what? We're all going to be neighbors in heaven and eventually neighbors on a new earth. And they're going to have to deal with us for all of eternity. So they might as well get to know us right now. Hallelujah. 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 So we, we, we thank God for what we have, that we have the word of God, which is all truth. It's everything that you need, right? And we have the confirmation of what had been taught from those words for all of that time. We can look at and say, that is the teaching of the apostles. And it is not just someone's opinion of how to interpret a verse. It is confirmed throughout history what the teaching of the church was. And you can't get that without the church. You can't get that without the church. Truth is, if it's just you and God and you and a Bible, then you have no authority with which to say, this is true and this is not. But if you know the church and you have the church, then the church is your authority. The church is your authority. Thank God that we have the word of God. Thank God that we have the truth and we can help other churches. You know, listen, there's other pastors and teachers and, and leaders and churches that might be misled by one wind of doctrine or another. And they might be deficient in their understanding of the reality of Scripture. But our call is not to uh, go ill. 
you're not a Christian, right? Our call is to go, well, listen, we've got, you want to see some miracles? Come on over. You want to see if miracles are today? I'll pray for you right now. You want to hear what tongue sounds like? I'll show you some tongues right now, right? You want to see where it is in the word? I will show you where it is in the word. And if I don't have, if I don't feel like I have the eloquence, the Lord will give it to me. And if the Lord doesn't give it to me, I will bring you to someone who has the eloquence to explain it to you. Because you, you know, you would do, you wouldn't do that to your kid, right? If your kid came up to you and had a misunderstanding in scripture, right? Like they came up and, and somebody told them something and they were like, oh, doesn't it say this and this and this? You wouldn't be like, all right, get out of here. There's a Methodist kid and you're not saved. <laughs> what is that? What are you, a Lutheran? A Calvinist over here? No, because it's your kid. You know what church they go to. So you're not like split off from them. You're just like, no, that's not what it says, honey. Here's the scripture. It says this, right? Right? And and I'm not saying you should be condescending to people, right? If you're speaking to your children, it's a little different than speaking to someone who didn't come out of your body. I would imagine. It seems different. So they have to be open to it, right? In order for you, to, for you to minister to them in love, right? But, but that's the thing. And the thing is, if all of us are working towards the same thing, then we are an unstoppable force. This world cannot resist the body of Christ if the body of Christ just gets up and starts doing something, Right? There's nothing that the devil can throw at the body of Christ that will keep the body of Christ from... From advancing by stepping on scorpions and snakes. There is no barrier. There is no wall. There is no weapon. The only thing that he can do is try to keep the body of Christ from getting out of bed in the morning. The only thing he can do is try to stop the body of Christ from knowing what their authority is. Trying to separate the body of Christ into a bunch of different smaller pieces so that they are limited in their ability. You know, I said this before as well. People say that the Roman emperor that legalized Christianity did it as a political move. Because the Christians were so numerous and were so powerful in their unity that he knew if he could get the Christians on his side, then he could conquer the rest of the empire and unify it together under one banner. If a third of the planet is Christians right now, one out of every three people. How quickly could we take the earth for Christ if we were that unified? How quickly could we take the earth for Christ if we knew who we were? 
and we were working together towards that call. Now, that is something that I am excited to see. The word of God says all of creation waits with bated breath for the manifestation of the sons of God. And I do too. Because when you think about a whole body of Christ all over this planet walking in the fullness of the stature of Jesus Christ, walking like the apostles walked in that first century, walking like Dr. Harfouche walks every day right now when he's walking around, walking in any amount of an understanding of who they are. I wouldn't want to be the devil that day. I mean, I wouldn't want to be the devil any day. <laughs> uh, the guy made some poor decisions. <laughs> That's not going to work out well. We know what his stock market's going to do. <laughs> he made some bad investments. Woo! We may be going up, but he's going down. (laughs) Well, stand up on your feet, church of God, everywhere that you are. Yes, you. I know that chair is probably comfortable, but the chairs here are comfortable too. Stand up on your feet. Hallelujah. 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 How many of you know that understanding the reality of the new birth is life-changing? Our identity, knowing who we are, is life-changing. That's why Dr. Arfouche has made heavenly identity available for just heavenly identity. And we're trying to get it into the hands, we're putting it into the hands of a million people because of how important that revelation is and how much that transforms your life. I believe that understanding this revelation of the church is just as transforming as that one. You are not alone. You are part of the body of Christ. And we are not meant to be an audience in front of a handful of empowered individuals. We are meant to be a body where the body is compacted together by that which each joint supplieth. A single body working in unison all over the planet Earth. The devil's worst nightmare. Scarier than Jesus himself being here in the flesh. Scarier than that. Why? Because there are billions of Jesuses here in the flesh. Hallelujah. Thanks for joining us on the Christian Harfouche Ministries podcast. Join us on our other podcast, Miracles Today. Connect with us at globalrevival.com and we'll see you next week.